RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. My name is Peter Mansfield and I'm a partner at law firm RPC. Now usually on this podcast I have a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. But this August we are doing something different. Instead of our normal fortnightly podcast we are releasing two episodes a week. So eight episodes in total in a series entitled Meditations on Insurance and Society. So, welcome to Meditations on Insurance and Society. In these eight meditations, we examine the role that insurance has played throughout history in shaping society. These meditations will incorporate a bit of philosophy, some psychology, a dash of anthropology, a few film references, a lot of insurance, and who knows what else. Think of it as a podcast blockbuster. This third meditation is called The Beneficial Selfishness of Strangers, and in it we finally reach the point when insurance as we know it today, premium-based insurance, comes kicking and screaming into the world, a happy, bouncing baby financial transaction. But what is this? We will discover that all is not what it seems. There is another obstacle to clear before insurance can take over the world. Because insurance is a faith transaction, and it needs to find people who are prepared to believe. And to do that, it has to find people who have something to fear. This episode explains how it found those people and how it evolved to respond to their fear. It is a fascinating story, and it starts here. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 1. A story involving ten bales of woollens. On the 13th day of February, in the year of our Lord 1343, a contractual arrangement was entered into by Amigetto Pinello and Avaducto Guglielmo. Now, there was nothing ostensibly unusual about that because Italian merchants in the 14th century agreed contracts all the time. However, there was something about this contract that was new. The contract itself was a contract of indemnity. One party, Pinello, agreed to provide an indemnity to the other party, Guillermo, in the event of a loss. But this by itself was not the novel element of this contract because in 1343, contracts of indemnity already existed. In the second meditation, we discussed a contractual arrangement known as bottomry, in which party A provides an indemnity to party B. But in bottomry, the indemnity is offered as part of the loan. And the unusual thing about this transaction between Pinello and Guillermo is that it did not involve a loan. So this transaction was not bottomry. It was, instead, recognisably, a standalone contract of insurance. That's right. 
this document, which still exists, is the earliest contract of modern insurance of which we are currently aware. But of course, it almost certainly was not the actual first insurance policy. Indeed, it probably wasn't even close to being the first policy. And we can say this with some confidence because the contract was agreed on behalf of Guillermo by an agent, Tommaso Grillo. And the existence of an agent suggests that by 1343, insurance was already an established form of commercial transaction. So we can speculate that modern insurance had been around since the early 1300s and possibly even the late 1200s. Now, to put that into historical context, this whole period occurred before the Black Death which did not start to spread across Europe until 1346. It is incredibly in that era that modern insurance was invented, 700 years ago. So let's put some flesh on the bones of this oldest known insurance policy. As a start, what do we know about our first recorded insured, Avoducto Guillermo? Well... He was a merchant based in Panormo, which, as far as I can tell, was the name at that time for Palermo, the current capital of Sicily. And Guillermo wanted to transport 10 bales of woolens from Pisa to Sicily on a galley called the Santa Catalina. And to be honest, I'm not sure whether the reference in the policy to woolens means woolen cloth or to bore wool, but either way, Guillermo wanted insurance for his woolens in the event that they were lost in transit. So he authorised his agent, Tommaso Grillo, to purchase insurance on his behalf. So what can we say about Grillo, who could, I suppose, be described loosely as the first recorded insurance broker? Well, he was based in Pisa, which was and is a small city in northwestern Italy, famous now primarily for its leaning tower. It is about the same size as the UK city of Chelmsford. But back in 1343, Pisa was, and here it differs from Chelmsford, a city of some grandeur, albeit a grandeur that was sadly fading. Because once upon a time, Pisa had been a major player in Mediterranean politics and trade. The 60 years previously, in 1284, its fleet had been defeated at the Battle of Maloria by the rival city-state of Genoa. And six years later, in 1290, the Genoese had rather gratuitously destroyed Pisa's port. So the Pisa of Tommaso Grillo was a city in decline. And there was no more visible metaphor for this than the unfinished Leaning Tower, the construction of which had started in 1173, but which in 1343 was still 30 years away from completion. At this point, I intended to make a joke about the fact that Grillo would have known it simply as the Tower of Pisa. But sadly, by 1343, the Tower, much like the city of Pisa, was already leaning. But despite all that, Pisa clearly had an effective insurance market. And who knows, it may even have been the place where insurance itself was first invented. However, it seems more likely that it wasn't because Pisa was just one, and a small one at that, 
amongst a number of city-states in northern Italy. These city-states competed in trade, in politics, in culture, and occasionally on the battlefield. There were probably a dozen or more such states, but the largest and most powerful ones were Milan, Venice, Siena and Florence. And when it came to the world trade, because let's remember that this first insurance policy related to the transport of wool, it was Florence that played the largest role. Now, at this time, Florence was one of the most powerful cities in Europe. The florin, Florence's unit of currency, was used as the dominant trade coin in Western Europe. It was the US dollar of its day. Not coincidentally, this period also saw the first cultural flowering of Florence. The poets, Dante and Petrarch, and the painter, Giotto, all foreshadowed the glories of the Renaissance a hundred or so years later. But it was wool that dominated Florence. Out of a population of around 80,000 people, it has been estimated that possibly 25,000, so over 30%, were engaged in the wool industry. So there would have been nothing more normal in 1343 than wool being exported from Florence down the River Arno through the city of Pisa and from there to destinations around the Mediterranean. As an aside, the commercial rise of Florence in this period is often credited to its banking industry. But, I asked rhetorically, is it possible that it was also facilitated by the invention of insurance? Because if Italian merchants were able to obtain insurance for their exports, then that would have surely given them a significant competitive advantage. But I digress, because we must return to Avoducto Guillermo and his quest for insurance. So, we've talked about Guillermo, and we've talked about his agent, Tommaso Grillo, and we've talked about wool. That leaves just one more thing to discuss, or one more person to discuss. The world's first recorded underwriter, Amighetto Pinello. Sadly, though, we know very little about Amighetto Pinello. In fact, we know more about someone who, I presume, was his relative, Valentino Pinello, who was named in the insurance policy as being the master of the Santa Catalina, the ship that was transporting the woolen bales to Sicily. So, the Pinellos were apparently involved in both shipping and in insurance, from which we can probably presume that they were more broadly a wealthy trading family. But whatever the truth of that, Amighetto Pinello agreed to provide Avoducto Guillermo with an indemnity of 680 gold florins in the event that the Woolens did not make it to Palermo. And in so doing, these three men, Pinello, Guillermo and Grillo, created a contract that is our first written evidence of modern insurance. Chapter 2. A Second Branch of the Evolutionary Tree Let's now explore in a little more detail what precisely was novel about this form of contract between Pinello and Guillermo. Actually, actually no. No, no, before we do that, shall we make one last foray back into antiquity? Shall we? 
Shall we? Yes, let's. But first a recap, because as already mentioned, in the last meditation, we looked at the history of Bottomry. Bottomry is a loan secured on the hull of the ship, but it is a loan with a twist. Loans normally have to be repaid, but a Bottomry loan in certain circumstances did not have to be repaid. For example, if the ship sank. So Bottomry was a loan that incorporated an element of insurance. But Bottomry is just one branch on the evolutionary tree that led to modern insurance. There is a second branch, and that branch can be called mutuality. And again, the roots are in religion. In Rome, and before that in Greece, there were religious societies which focused on the worship of a particular god or goddess. When a member of those societies died, the society would pay for the burial. This was not to honour the member, but to honour the god or goddess. It simply wasn't a good look for Athena or Minerva if one of their followers was given a pauper's burial. Over time, these religious societies evolved into non-religious burial societies. You would pay an initial fee to become a member and then a periodic subscription. Then, upon the member's death, the burial society would pay a funeraticium, which would cover funeral expenses and such like. In many respects, these were similar to the burial clubs that were formed during Victorian Britain, or even the funeral bonds that are still available today. But back in Rome, these burial societies involved a group of people, possibly connected people, who would each pay a premium into a collective pot which would then be used to pay out various benefits on the happening of a specified event, which looks a little like mutual insurance. Now, of course, mutual insurance nowadays has a specific definition. It is insurance provided by a company owned entirely by policyholders rather than by shareholders. And I am not suggesting that these Roman burial societies fulfilled that definition. They didn't but there is a hint of mutuality about the way in which they operated. And that is why I have described this second branch of the evolutionary tree as mutuality. Now, the paradigm of a mutual insurer in 21st century Britain is the bar mutual. A group of connected people, barristers, each pay a premium into a collective pot, which is then used to pay off any claims that are made against those barristers. So, for any barristers listening you may be pleased to know that the bar mutual is a successor to the Roman burial societies. Well, possibly. But there's more. Although the burial societies did not survive the fall of the Roman Empire, a couple of hundred years later, a different form of mutual insurance appeared in medieval Flanders in northern Europe. But this was for a very different purpose, and it was linked to the rise of the guilds in the 700s AD. Although this analogy is anachronistic and probably misleading, the guilds were an early form of trade union, uniting like-minded individuals with a focus on mutual support. But to achieve that, the guilds quickly realised that they needed to have some level of self-sufficiency. They therefore developed forms of mutual insurance for their members, covering losses arising from fire, shipwreck, and so on. One defining feature of the guilds was that the members each swore an oath to the guild 
and to each other. And as with any other organisation that has secretive elements, the guilds soon attracted the suspicions of the authorities. In AD 779, therefore, a law, the Capitulare Francicum, was passed, prohibiting all groups bound by oaths from providing mutual protection. Similar prohibitions followed in AD 794, 821, 827 and 832. Oh, and 856. And 860, 864, 898 and so on. Which suggests two things. Not only were the prohibitions largely ineffective, but also that the practice of mutual insurance bound by oath was extremely attractive and valuable to guild members because it gave power to individuals by forming them into a group. Roll forward another 200 years, and even though the guilds had disappeared, the concept of mutual insurance still persisted, and on an even grander scale. Some of the towns in Flanders were granted charters called curen, and some of these curen incorporated mutual forms of insurance. For example, the cura of Rurnenbacht stated that if a person's house burned down, the whole village had to indemnify them. So this constituted a form of insurance, a form of mutual insurance, but there was one key difference between this and the form of insurance that evolved a little later in the city-states of northern Italy. Chapter 3. Universal Anonymity So, what was it about the insurance in Flanders that differed from the insurance that would develop later in Italy? Well, the best way to explain this is to think about how the mutual insurance in Flanders actually worked in practice. So, let's consider for a moment the insurance that we had just mentioned, the mutual insurance available under the Cura of Vernenbach. Now, Forgive me for making an obvious point, but this insurance was only available if you lived in Vernonbach. If you lived in nearby Ypres, the insurance was completely irrelevant. Now, it was possible that Ypres had its own system of insurance, but that would have been irrelevant to the good denizens of Vernonbach. And that is what I mean when I talk about mutuality. The insurance in Flanders was insurance created by a bounded set of people for their own mutual benefit. In the case of Vernonbach, the bounded set would have been the inhabitants of Vernonbach. And in fact, the bar mutual is a good modern example of this. In order to benefit from the insurance provided by the bar mutual, you have to be a barrister. If you belong to any other form of profession, accountant, financial advisor, engineer, nurse, you are excluded. For you, it ceases to be the bar mutual and becomes, kind of, no, wait for this, the barred mutual. <laughs> but, but barred, barred mutual, B-A-R-R-E-D, but, mm. Now, this concept of the bounded set does not apply to all modern mutuals, which is why I repeat that I am not talking about mutual insurance as it is now defined. I'm talking about mutuality. 
the way in which a self-defining group of people combine to create a mutually beneficial form of insurance. And in many ways, this concept of mutuality is similar to that of a club. It is analogous to the formation of a club. And perhaps it's therefore unsurprising that some insurers, even now, call themselves clubs. P&I clubs are organisations that sell a form of mutual insurance known as protection and indemnity. So that was mutuality. And now we must contrast that with the form of insurance subsequently created in Italy. Unlike the insurance in Flanders, the insurance in Italy was a form of insurance which had no entry requirements. There was no bounded set. In theory, anyone who wanted it could buy it and anyone who wanted to sell it could sell it. So the policy between Avaducto Guillermo and Amigetto Pinello was a new thing. It was not connected to a loan, so it was not bottomry. And it was not restricted to the bounded set of members of a specific club or town or interest group or guild. So it did not fall within my definition of mutuality. This insurance was instead free-floating, standalone, completely independent. It was a contract that could, theoretically, be adapted to any financial risk and could be entered into by any two people on the face of the planet. If I want to buy car insurance in 2023, then, putting aside regulatory issues, I could purchase it from anyone. A bloke down the pub, the website dodgyinsurance.com, or even an entrepreneurial five-year-old. And similarly, if I sold car insurance, I could sell it to anyone. One of the defining features of modern insurance, therefore, is its universality. It is not restricted by a bounded set. And another feature, flowing naturally from its universality, is its anonymity. Because there is no bounded set, when I buy car insurance, I have no personal connection to the insurer and I do not know any of the other insureds. We are all strangers to each other. I buy my insurance for entirely selfish reasons. Yet, my premium goes into a pool and if I do not have a claim that year, then my premium will be used for the benefit of someone else. But that someone else will be a stranger so, modern insurance is therefore based on the principle of the beneficial selfishness of strangers. And that's the genius of what was created 700 years ago in Pisa, or possibly Genoa, or perhaps somewhere else. Chapter 4. The Mutual Benefit of Colleagues So, there we have it. In the early 1300s, the commercial geniuses of northern Italy had invented a form of insurance based on the beneficial selfishness of strangers, a system of universality and anonymity, insurance that was not dependent on a group of people coming together with a mutual interest, but an insurance that could be sold by anyone, to anyone, and cover just about anything. But... And of course, there is always a but. That is not quite how it looked in the 1300s, nor indeed for a very long time after. Because 
Whilst in theory, anyone could buy insurance and anyone could sell insurance, in reality, it was limited to a fairly small group of merchants. This group would sometimes buy insurance and they would sometimes sell insurance. They were both merchants and insurers. They were merchant insurers with a hyphen, merchant hyphen insurers. So, it seems that insurance was created as a means by which the merchants and traders of the Mediterranean could spread risk amongst themselves. In the 1300s, therefore, this novel form of insurance was a hybrid beast. Its contractual nature meant that it had the potential to be very different from the forms of mutual insurance that we have been discussing. It had the potential to be almost infinitely flexible, moulding to just about any form of financial loss, to be the sort of insurance that we have today. But that is not how it was used. Instead, it was restricted to just marine trade. And to the outside observer, and possibly also to the merchant insurers themselves, it would have felt almost indistinguishable from mutual insurance. Because it still involved a relatively small group of like-minded individuals, mostly or entirely men, who probably all knew each other, or knew of each other, sharing a pot of money to spread their collective trading risk. Of course, some outsiders may have been involved, people who were not merchants, but who saw insurance as a means to make some money. But largely speaking, insurance was not conducted on the anonymous basis of the beneficial selfishness of strangers. On the contrary, at this stage, it was insurance as the mutual benefit of colleagues. It was a case of, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. If you buy insurance from me, I'll buy it from you and we'll both make money. It was, therefore, a financial instrument of hugely unfulfilled potential. It was like having the latest iPhone and using it simply to make phone calls. Chapter 5. The Inner Ring of the Seventh Circle of Hell So, Why was it that the Italian merchant insurers did not take advantage of the commercial flexibility of insurance? Well, it was possibly because, even by doing what they were doing, they were already breaching the rules of the Catholic Church. Because insurance was perceived to be a form of usury. Usury is the practice of charging unreasonable interest on a loan, although for much of history, it has meant charging any form of interest at all. Of course, nowadays, we describe the charging of interest as sensible financial management. But historically, the attitude towards usury and interest has been very, very different. Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, Seneca and most of the world's religions have all railed against it. The medieval theologian St Thomas Aquinas, who died in 1274, said... Interest is inherently unjust, and one who charges interest sins. And Dante, in his Divine Comedy, written in 1321, so exactly in the period that insurance was invented, put usurers in the inner ring of the seventh circle of hell, in the plain of burning sand, where the rain descends as fire. 
which gives you a clue as to what Dante thought of usurers. Now, the problem with usury is that you pay for the use of money. You are lent £10 and you pay back £12. Back then, that was perceived to be exploitative. Nowadays, we probably wouldn't regard paying £12 to use £10 as being exploitative. But what if the figure was £50? You are lent £10 and you have to pay back £50. Well, that would be bad. That would be loan shark territory. And do we like loan sharks? No, we don't. That's why we call them sharks. If we liked them, we would call them kittens. Although, kind of personally, I do like sharks and I'm really not that keen on kittens. So anyway, but that's not relevant. What is relevant is why we don't like loan sharks. We don't like them because they are perceived to be taking advantage of the poor and unjustly enriching themselves. Now, the only difference between our modern view of loan sharks and the medieval view of usurers is the rate of interest at which the loan kitten transforms into a loan shark. In 2023, that percentage is pretty high. But back in 1323, all lenders were regarded as sharks as soon as the interest rate exceeded 0%. But, I hear you cry, insurance does not lend money and there is no element of interest. So why was it perceived as usurious? Usurious. Us, us. Why was it perceived as being usury? Well, it is because you still pay for money. You pay a premium and in return you receive, well, usually you receive nothing. But when you do receive something, you receive money. So you have paid for money. And this was a problem because in 1236, Pope Gregory IX had declared that all usurious contracts were void. That's void as in unenforceable, which is kind of not great for a contract. And this meant that the ever-inventive merchant insurers of Italy had to pretend that their contracts were not, in fact, usury. Let's return for a moment to our old friends, Amighetto Pinello and Avaducto Guglielmo, the first underwriter and the first insured of whom we are aware. As explained above, the insurance policy purchased by Avaducto Guglielmo had a limit of indemnity of 680 gold florins. But that is not what the contract actually said. Instead, the contract said, first, that Guillermo had lent 680 gold florins to Pinello. So the insured had lent the limit of indemnity to the insurer. However, Pinello had renounced acceptance of the 680 gold florins. In other words, he had not actually received the 680 gold florins. So at this point, Pinello, the insurer, was under an obligation to repay 680 gold florins to Guillermo, the insured, even though he had not actually received the 680 gold florins. However, Pinello would only in fact repay the 680 gold florins if the insured goods, 
the ten bales of woolens, failed to make it to their destination, Palermo in Sicily. In other words, if the ten bales made it to Palermo, nothing happened. The contract was terminated. It was only if the bales were lost at sea that Pinello would pay 680 gold florins to Guillermo. Now that, in a very roundabout way, is insurance. If the cargo is lost, the insurer pays. However, because of the way the contract had been drafted, it looked as though it was an interest-free loan, which is not usury. And in order to maintain this facade, there is no reference in the policy to the payment of a premium. Of course, it is inevitable that Guillermo did pay a premium, but to state that in the policy would have made it obvious that the contract was usury, so it simply wasn't mentioned. Which meant that if someone accused them of committing usury, they could retain the defence of plausible deniability. But more importantly, it also made it harder for the underwriter, Pinello, to say, Oh, sorry, Guillermo, mate, I, I can't pay that claim of 680 gold florins because, well, you know, our contract is void. Sorry. And we know that some underwriters did try to argue this because this practice was banned in Genoa in 1369. As an aside, within some forms of Islam, this prohibition against usury remains and a form of insurance called takaful has been developed to avoid breaching that prohibition. Takaful can be translated as solidarity and it is based on a system of mutual guarantees. Its global market is predicted to rise to 49 billion US dollars by 2026. That's 49 billion US dollars. Within Catholic Europe, though, the commercial necessity of insurance gradually overwhelmed the theological objections. Premium-based insurance no longer needed to pretend that it was something else. But even this did not have the effect in practice of loosening the mutual nature of how insurance worked amongst the merchant insurers. And in truth, it would be another 400 years before insurance truly began to develop its ability to draw together strangers in a pool of mutually beneficial selfishness. Chapter 6. Band of Brothers In that 400-year period, from 1300 to 1700, insurance spread geographically and it matured commercially. But the surprising element is that the culture and ethos of the merchant insurer world remained largely unchallenged and unchanged. It remains throughout as a close-knit community, and as a consequence, the huge potential of insurance remained unfulfilled. Insurance did not develop into new lines of business, and it did not develop beyond a small group of men. Even as late as the 1660s, the club of merchant insurers was extremely exclusive. This is shown by the tale of Charles Moresco, which is told in Adrian Leonard's excellent book on the history of London marine insurance between 1438 and 1824. 
Charles Moresco was a merchant in London. Over a four-year period, he purchased 108 separate insurance policies, most or all of which were underwritten by multiple private insurers. Yet, when the numbers are crunched, it transpires that 84% of the value of those 108 policies was underwritten by just 10 men. And in total, there were only 31 individual underwriters. And of course, Moresco himself was an underwriter. So it is clear that access to insurance was largely restricted to a small number of insiders. But perhaps we should look at this another way. Perhaps it was because of the culture and ethos of the merchant insurer world that caused, or at least enabled, both its geographical spread and its commercial maturity. Because, think about it, insurance requires a lot of trust. As I mentioned in the second meditation, insurance is a faith transaction. As an insured, you are handing your premium to a third party, the insurer. In 1343, Avoducto Guillermo paid a premium to Amigetto Pinello, and in return he received nothing more than a promise. So, from the very first second of the transaction, Guillermo was out of pocket. And if the ship had sunk, it may have been days or weeks before the news came through, and then Guillermo would have to make a claim against Pinello. But of course, Guillermo was in Palermo, and Pinello was in Pisa. So, as far as Guillermo was concerned, there was a double trust going on. Trust that Pinello wouldn't just run off with the premium and trust that Pinello would play by the rules at the time of the claim. As Adrian Leonard says, the merchant insurer's system operated successfully because individual participants correctly trusted each other to meet their obligations. And that trust was generated not because of friendship or camaraderie or although that may have played a part, but because both the insured and the insurer had skin in the game. They each needed the other in order to succeed and to make a profit. As merchant insurers, they were familiar with both sides of the transaction, as insured and as insurer, and it was in both of their interests for the system to work, because they knew that the system would ultimately benefit them both. The merchant insurers were, therefore, a band of brothers. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that insures me shall be my brother. As an aside, that is obviously a misquotation from Shakespeare, who put those words, or something like them, in the mouth of Henry V on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt, which was fought in 1415, which was 70 years after the contract of insurance between Pinello and Guillermo. This is yet another reminder of how extraordinarily early insurance was invented. Now, of course, the relationship between these merchant insurers wasn't always rosy. And of course, there were on occasion policy disputes, sometimes caused by dodgy insureds, and sometimes by dodgy insurers. But overall, 
insurance succeeded because it was kept within a fairly tight group. And that group consisted largely of people who were both merchants and insurers. And as these merchant insurers interacted with each other, they gradually built up a body of customs, rules and traditions, a way of doing insurance. And these rules became part of the wider commercial rules known as Lex Mercatoria or Law Merchant. These rules were formed by the merchant insurers for the merchant insurers, in many respects the same way as the rules of football were formed by footballers for footballers. And as the practice of insurance spread across the Mediterranean and then later to Northern Europe, it was these rules and customs that enabled insurance to develop so consistently and so successfully. But it was also these rules and customs that ensured that insurance retained its feel as something created solely for the mutual benefit of the merchant insurers. Chapter 7. The Rise and Fall of Antwerp and Amsterdam To summarise our story to date, in the first half of the 1300s, a new form of insurance had been created, one which had the potential to be adapted to cover just about any form of financial risk, one that had the potential to be genuinely universal. But instead, insurance remained restricted within a relatively small number of merchant insurers, and it retained the air of a private club, created solely for the mutual benefit of its members, bound by its own set of rules known as the law merchant. But why? Why did it remain so constrained? Why did the wild beast of insurance live as though it was caged? Yes, the rules against usury didn't help, but I would argue that it was primarily a consequence of insurance's nature as a faith transaction. It can only exist where there is trust between insurer and insured, and therefore can only flourish within a group that is bound together by trust. And insurance had found that group in the merchant insurers of Italy, who were bound to each other through the mutually beneficial bonds of trade and insurance. For better or for worse, this was the soil in which insurance had rooted itself and had started to grow. And in some respects, it was for worse, because as long as insurance was tied to the economic interests of the merchant insurers, it would remain restricted by this sense of mutuality. It could not fulfil its potential as the universal anonymous insurance that is based on the beneficial selfishness of strangers. But being linked to merchants also came with benefits because wherever they went to trade, insurance would travel with them. And it therefore guaranteed that insurance would expand geographically. As Adrian Leonard says, Insurance's intimate connection with seaborne trade meant that the basic model spread quickly throughout the European merchant communities. And by quickly, we mean quickly. I mean, there is evidence that insurance was being sold in Bruges, in modern Belgium, by 1377, and in London, by 1426. 
Several centuries before, northern Italy had been known as the Kingdom of Lombardy, and it was that name that travelled with the first Italian merchants as they spread to other cities. Hence, Lombard Street in the city of London and Rue des Lombards in Paris. There is a pleasing historical symmetry in this, if you look hard enough and are slightly creative, because the Lombards had originally been a Germanic tribe, possibly located as far north as modern Denmark. So, in some respects, these merchants were bringing the name of Lombardy back to northern Europe, from whence it had originated. And it wasn't long before northern Europe took over from Italy as the hub of insurance innovation. And the first main insurance centre in northern Europe was Antwerp. Of course, this was not the only place where insurance was sold. In the 1400s, there were also merchant communities in in Bruges, London, Hamburg and, and further south in the Spanish city of Burgos. But in the late 1400s, it was Antwerp that rose to preeminence, partly because it was the main port for Portuguese pepper imports, which genuinely isn't easy to say. Although insurance must have been sold in Antwerp in the 1400s, the earliest existing policy dates from July 1531. That policy covered the hull and cargo for a voyage from Lübeck to Arnemuerden for an indemnity of 1,883 Flemish pounds. The policy was underwritten by 44 separate individuals, of whom 41 were Italian, Spanish or Portuguese, which shows that the merchant insurer market was still dominated at this stage by Mediterranean merchants. By 1560, so just 30 years after that earliest known policy, Antwerp was the largest insurance market in the world. In 1562 and 1563, a single broker, Juan Enriquez, arranged 1,621 policies with a combined value of 487,000 Flemish pounds. That was roughly double the entire insurance output of Burgos, an earlier hub of insurance, at its peak. But just as the rise of Antwerp was staggering, so was its demise. In 1560, Antwerp's population was 100,000, and it was the wealthiest city in Europe. By 1590, its population had fallen to just 40,000, and its commercial dominance had disappeared, just one consequence of a bloody war. Antwerp was located in an area known as the Spanish Netherlands, which, as the name suggests, was controlled by Spain, arguably the leading country in Europe, enriched with vast quantities of gold looted from the newly discovered Americas. In 1568, seven of the 17 provinces of the Spanish Netherlands rebelled against Spanish rule. These provinces would, in due course, become the Netherlands, leaving the remainder to become, albeit much later, Belgium and Luxembourg. Antwerp, was part of the rebellion. It was Dutch-speaking and was vehemently anti-Spanish. Indeed, at one point, Antwerp was the capital of the Dutch revolt. However, in 1576, it was sacked by the Spanish, who reportedly massacred 7,000 citizens. And in 1585, Antwerp fell conclusively 
into Spanish hands. To this day, Antwerp remains part of Belgium rather than part of the Netherlands. The residents and foreign merchants of Antwerp were forced to scatter as refugees across Europe. But the main beneficiary of this diaspora was Amsterdam. This influx of experienced and entrepreneurial merchants meant that Amsterdam then dominated the world of insurance for over 100 years, a period coinciding with the Dutch Golden Age, during which the Netherlands was the foremost economic power in the world. As the historian Sabine Goh says, the Amsterdam insurance market acquired a reputation as the only market where all risks could be insured, every possible route and risk could be covered, and any asset or merchandise was insurable. However, despite consisting of merchant insurers, the Amsterdam market had always been fragmented, and as a result, it proved unable to collaborate and innovate on the scale that was increasingly required. During the 1600s, insureds who wanted more and more insurance for larger and larger risks increasingly found that the Amsterdam market did not offer what they needed. Amsterdam gradually lost its ability to compete, and by around 1720, its era as the leading insurance market had come to an end. The new insurance kid on the block was London. Chapter 8 If Jesus Christ had not died for thee, thou hadst been damned. We're in London. It's late 17th century. Oliver Cromwell's protectorate is at an end, and the monarchy has been restored. The new king is Charles, which, as you come to think of it, is a great name for a king. Anyway, what about insurance? Well, it is still dominated by merchant insurers. It is still limited to maritime trade, and it is still largely conducted in accordance with the law merchant. That set of customs that had started in Italy, been adapted in Antwerp and Amsterdam, and were now evolving further in London. In many respects, therefore, insurance in London is still nothing more than a glorified mutual, specialising in the insurance of ships and cargo, just as it had been for 400 years. But there are two subtle changes. The first is that whereas once these merchants had been Mediterranean emigres, they are now locals with English names like Baker, Hodges, and, I'm rather proud to say, Mansfield. And we know this because Henry Mansfield was an underwriter named in the Merchant Insurers Bill of 1693, albeit he clearly was not a very good underwriter because he was seeking protection from bankruptcy. But it means that there is an English insurance industry with English underwriters and an English focus. The second change is that alongside the merchant insurers, there are now others, not as many as there could be, but undeniably some, who sell insurance even though they are not themselves merchants people who are attracted to insurance because of the profit to be made. Which means that there are people who see insurance as an industry in its own right, rather than simply as an adjunct 
to trade. These subtle changes are not new, they have been developing for a century or more. But allied to wider social change and to the financial revolution of the late 17th century, they set the scene for the next great development in the history of insurance. Now, those of you familiar with the history of Lloyd's of London will know that this period saw the opening of Edward Lloyd's coffee shop, and you may think that the creation of Lloyd's of London is what I have been building towards. But it isn't, and I haven't. Because Lloyd's did not really become an institution until much later in the 1700s, and in fact, it was Lloyd's that maintained the status quo of the merchant insurer world. Indeed, even as late as 1810, John Inglis, speaking at a parliamentary inquiry, said in the context of Lloyd's underwriters, I perceive that the true principle of insurance is that of merchants meeting by some means or another to participate in their risks by insuring each other. That was in 1810. Merchants insuring each other. Which suggests that Lloyd's even then was not that different from the insurance market in Italy in 1350. But if Lloyd's is not the destination for our story, what is? Well, the truly radical change, the one that changed the nature of insurance forever, the one that allowed insurance to break free from the restrictive chains of mutuality and enabled it to be the insurance we have today with multiple products available to every one of the 8 billion people currently on planet Earth, the truly radical change was the invention of the insurance company. Or more precisely, the unincorporated joint stock partnership with its many shareholders, its directors, its corporate branding and its anonymous crowd of customers. Now, as far as I can tell, the first insurance company was actually founded in Germany on 30th of November 1676, the Hamburger Feuerkasse. The origins of the Hamburger Feuerkasse started about a century before, when a hundred or so breweries in Hamburg agreed a form of mutual insurance in which any losses caused by fire to one of them would be indemnified by all of them. Unfortunately, this arrangement proved to be unsuccessful, largely because breweries in Hamburg had a spectacular ability to burst into flames. But it led to the city of Hamburg in 1676 setting up the Hamburger Feuerkasse, which, I'm pleased to say, is still going strong almost 350 years later. In England, it probably wasn't until four or five years later, in 1680 or 1681, that the first insurance company was created, the rather unimaginatively named Insurance Office for Houses, which sold fire insurance. This insurance office was established by Nicholas Barbon, who purportedly had been given the magnificent baptismal name of If Jesus Christ had not died for thee, thou hast been damned. So, presumably damned for short. Now, at this point, I probably should say that there are some historians, um, maybe most historians, who dispute the assertion that Nicholas Barbon 
had this name on the understandable basis that it probably isn't true. But to be honest, they're sports sports and should be ignored. What is the point of postmodernism if you can't insert a good, untrue fact every now and again? Anyway, we don't know what happened to Barbon's insurance office for houses, but subsequently, more successful companies were established. In 1698, the Hand in Hand, which was set up as a mutual. And in 1710, the Sun Fire Office, which was a joint stock company. And of course, the Sun Fire Office lives on today as RSA, or Royal and Sun Alliance Insurance Limited. And in common with the insurance office, both the Sun and the Hand in Hand sold fire insurance. And then, in 1720, by Act of Parliament, charters were awarded to the Royal Exchange Assurance and the London Assurance, both of whom also focused, albeit not immediately, on fire insurance. So, why this sudden focus on fire insurance? Well, unsurprisingly, it was a direct response to the Great Fire of London of 1666 that had destroyed more than 13,000 houses, including the whole of the insurance district in Lombard Street. The catastrophe provided the impetus for the creation of this new type of insurance. It generated the fear that I have argued is necessary for the development of insurance. As London was rebuilt, it was natural for purchasers to think, what if? What if my house burns down? And for the first time, in response to this fear, the concept of insurance was transferred from ships and cargo to something else. And for the first time, the concept of insurance as a product came into existence. Policies were churned out by these companies. The hand-in-hand alone issued over 7,200 policies in its first eight years. And suddenly, a distance was created between insurer and insured. Whereas the merchant insurers had been intimately connected with each other through their mutual trade, there was no such connection between the insurance company selling insurance and the insured's purchasing insurance. Nor was there any connection between one insured and another. The policy had a fixed wording and was sold for a price off the shelf with no scope for negotiation. Insureds became simply buyers, customers, consumers. They were not fellow insurers. They they didn't even understand insurance. They were buying insurance much as they would buy a pair of shoes or a side of mutton as a commodity to meet an individual need. For the first time, insurance began to break free from the mutuality of the previous 400 years. This new type of insurance did not exist for the mutual benefit of colleagues, but was founded on the principle of the beneficial selfishness of strangers. It it did not rely on the mutual interests of merchants, but on the whims of investors whose desire was the accumulation of premium and profit. And Each insured purchased its policy without a care for anyone else. This insurance worked because of the selfish impulse amongst insureds 
to buy insurance, driven by a fear of what they might personally lose if their home or business burnt down. And this fear was sufficient for them to put their faith in an insurance company. Yet, at the same time, this new form of insurance worked because the premium from each individual insured was then pooled with all the other premiums and was used to benefit those who were in need. And that is the insurance that we have today. My selfishness in buying home insurance in 2023 benefits complete strangers, people whom I might dislike in real life, people whose political views I may find objectionable, people to whom I would never show charity or kindness, but yet through insurance, I do show them charity and kindness, and they me. By seeking to protect myself, I protect others. And that is why, at the heart of insurance, we find this weird oxymoron. At the heart of insurance, we find the beneficial selfishness of strangers. Thank you for listening to this third meditation. In the next meditation, entitled The Unmoved Mover, we will examine how insurance messes with our minds and therefore how it manipulates us as individuals and as societies to act in ways that we would not otherwise act, with consequences that are often good, occasionally bad and sometimes extremely ugly. Here's an extract to whet your appetite. One of the greatest opening sentences in all literature was written by Franz Kafka in his book Metamorphosis. As Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a gigantic insect. Metamorphosis was published in 1915, and in the same year, Kafka also wrote an essay that is not quite so famous. It was called Risk Classification and Accident Prevention in Wartime because the same Franz Kafka who has been called literature's lonely scribe of existential despair was also a high-ranking official of the Workman's Accident Insurance Institute for the Kingdom of Bohemia in Prague. I hope you'll join us on Thursday for the next Meditation on Insurance and Society. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.